0: folks, I'm Tilden Reimer-Leach, and you're listening to Forces That Move Us, Lost Homes and Solutions Amidst the Chaos. It's so great to have you back. I'm really excited about today's episode and I think you guys are really going to like it. In this episode and in a few of the episodes to follow, I want to share with you stories that focus on different kinds of solutions that people have come up with after the devastating earthquake of 2016 on the coast of Ecuador. When we hear about natural disasters and their effects, we also hear a lot of discussions about disaster preparedness systems, government responses and international aid and the big one, sustainable solutions. And when we evaluate natural disaster relief work, we can put responses into neat categories and add fancy terminology. We can go evaluate and check off boxes to see if a project or program was successful or not. Pack up our bags and head home. But in reality, our lives are messy and the solutions we come up with are also going to be messy flawed, and sometimes brilliant. No solution is going to be perfect. One of the reasons I am so interested in issues of displacement, migration, and resettlement is because it still feels like one of the last frontiers in so many ways. There are so many kinks we still need to figure out, whether you're looking at response systems from the perspective of government officials, and aid workers or concerned citizens or even someone who's lost their home. As you will see from this episode, traditional disaster response systems can be very flawed in surprising ways. Flawed in ways we really may not even be able to fully imagine or come to terms with unless we talk to the people on the ground who are displaced.
1: they put up a a very good stand and the battle is still going on, more than two and a half years later and and they're still in the battle. Rebellions or rebels are are not a a good thing to have, but sometimes it's good to have one or two thrown in the the pot for good measure, (laughs) to keep (laughs) even the honest people honest.
0: Okay, guys, so I'm here on the island of Muizna now, which is about an hour south of Atacames, where I've been staying. (laughs) I literally almost died trying to walk over the pedestrian bridge (laughs) that they have here to to get from the mainland to the island. But I will have to tell you more about that um, in the podcast. Anyways, I wanted to stop and record something because I just passed a sign on someone's house that said in big bold letters. In Spanish it reads, here it is, De Muisne no nos vamos, aquí nos quedamos. Which in English translates to something like, we are not leaving Muisne, here we stay. So yeah, there's definitely something going on here on the island.
1: Most people live on the edges of mangrove swamps, so uh, at high tide you, m- their houses are uh, standing in water or just just a few meters from the water. Uh, and in the rainy season the whole island and the whole area becomes a s- swampy and, and, and full of uh, mosquito larvae.
0: This is Martin Cool. He's an Australian born Ecuadorian who has been living just a few towns over from the island of Muisne since 2001. He was there when the earthquake hit and has seen all of the changes the island has gone through since that fateful day. When Marvin says that the island floods every day, he really does mean it. The island of Muisne is in a very special geographical location. It is located on the northern coast of Ecuador in the province of Esmeraldas. The island of Muesne is just a few hundred feet away from the mainland town, which is also confusingly called Muesne. <laughs> on the western side of the island, you can see out onto a beautiful crystal blue ocean. And on the eastern side, there is a wide river that separates the island from the mainland. This channel brings in seawater and fish with the tide every day, and then recedes back to the ocean. I visited the island fairly frequently over the course of my year in Ecuador. And I quickly learned to time my visits according to low tide. Literally, roads get covered in water. And you can easily become trapped in certain areas of the island if you don't know your way around. Or if you just happen to have bad timing, like me. I remember seeing a kid swimming in water up to his chest next to a house on stilts. The next day, I had to do a double take, because I swear, in that exact spot where the kid was swimming, I saw just a sandy road, and people were just walking down it. I was like, huh, guess that's a road, and just kept walking. <laughs> because of the daily tidal flooding, most of the houses on the island are raised on stilts. But the locals don't seem to mind. Everyone wears flip-flops, and people seem generally unfazed by a little mud or sand between their toes. Plus, they have more important things to worry about. The island has historically received little to no attention from the government. There is no running water on the island. They have to import all fruits and vegetables every day from the mainland. And before 2016, the only way to get from the mainland to the island was to pay a small fishing boat to ferry you across
1: and despite that you can you can meet people in the street uh, and it's a very comfortable pleasant place you don't feel like anyone's going to steal from you walking around in the streets people will greet each other very in a very pleasant way it's really quite a an ironic situation where a lot of very negative and very positive innocent type people who who have to bear the burden of circumstances more than anything it's not not uh, it, most of the bad people are, are just people taking advantage of a, of a bad situation
0: when the 7.8 magnitude earthquake hit Ecuador on April 16 2016 it hit this area especially hard the epicenter of the earthquake was located only 17 miles from the town of muesney In the first few moments after the earthquake, many of the 10,000 residents on the island were paralyzed. What should they do? If a tsunami was on its way, it would engulf the island and the mainland, since higher ground can only be found miles inland. But if they left, looters could come and steal precious household items that were left among the rubble. On top of this, there was the problem of how to actually get off the island. The only way at the time was to cross the river to the mainland by boat. And with only a few fishing boats left untouched, this would take days. And the conditions on the mainland were the same as on the island. Houses turned to rubble, children crying, and incredible uncertainty. In total, about 50% of the houses on the island of Muisne suffered damage from the earthquake. Many residents of the island ended up staying put and after a few days, aid organizations were able to hand out plastic tents for people to live in. Life was just beginning to return to normal. Well, that was until the national government of former president Correa stepped in.
1: Why the government couldn't just invest in people and just help them develop some sort of uh, tourism related to the aquatic facilities the the sea and the rivers and the mangroves that are around them i don't i don't quite understand
0: after the tragedy ex president rafael correa declared the island unfit to live on due to the potential threat of a tsunami all of the residents on the island were told to evacuate and the island would be reserved for tourism only the first time i stepped foot on the island I thought this decree made sense. I mean, who wants to live on an island that has daily tidal flooding? But rumors started to surface and the island residents grew suspicious and even a bit angry.
1: I guess initially it was only about 100 people, but it quickly grew to well over half the the population. Uh, So, Basically, people didn't know and didn't really understand what the hell was going on because, because the government was just saying it's a danger zone and they had to move out. It's, it, this is an abs- absurd thing because if you go to any town in Ecuador, you'll find high-risk zones, whether it be because of flooding or landslides or, or something else. And there are whole suburbs living there and they don't do it. nobody does anything about it.
0: Marvin is right. Ecuador is filled with countless examples of people living in danger zones. For example, the country as a whole has 27 active volcanoes, some of which are located right next to Quito, the capital, which has the highest density population in the whole country. Suspicion on the island grew stronger. People banded together, putting signs up all around town saying they weren't going to move. People started repairing their homes, reopening their shops despite a new government issued order stating that the government would not help to rebuild any homes on the island, that all state services would be removed, and that all state-run schools on the island would be shut down. The Korea administration wanted people off the island.
1: it was obvious that it was it was controlling people's thoughts exaggeratedly uh by the the fact that suddenly we were bombarded by every 10 or 20 minutes on the television uh there would be propaganda relating to how wonderful they were and how they were changing life for ecuadorians and how they were returning the patrimony of the country to to the poor people more more than anything. And they were swallowing it all and none of it was true. What they were doing was uh, liquidating the country to generate a lot of employment and do a a whole lot of uh, eye-catching public works like bridges and and resurfacing roads so that everyone would see them as as good guys who were working hard and and doing a lot. But most of the money wasn't (laughs) going into public works, it was going into other interests.
0: The suspicion among the residents of the island was that the government had other interests at play. That it wasn't really necessary to evacuate. That if a tsunami came, it would damage the island as well as the mainland. That if the government was really worried about a tsunami, they would have to build a whole new city, miles and miles inland.
1: And it turns out that they were trying to sell it to foreign interests, so someone else said that it was um, Arabian people who were interested in buying the island in one go. And if they were interested in it, why would it be an undesirable place to live? It made no sense.
0: The idea was that the island could become prime real estate for luxury apartment buildings. Chinese or Arabian tourists would have a private island with gorgeous ocean views, great local attractions like whales, fishing, surfing, hiking, and it would only be a few hours drive from the capital.
1: But suddenly it became interesting for the national government to to evacuate the whole island and. Uh get them living on the hills just nearby so they could be a good labor force for an international tourist resort to be built on the island. And in reality, Muisne, I would consider the the best beach resort in the country because it's got a seven kilometer long beach. Almost the whole length of it is palm fringed with coconut palms.
0: And why would the Ecuadorian government be so eager to sell the island to someone like the Chinese government? Well, currently, 80% of Ecuador's shares of oil are going to the Chinese. The Korea government has been praised for renovating infrastructure and highway systems throughout the country, but in turn, they created an $11 billion debt, still owed to the Chinese. The government's evacuation rationale began to fall through as local experts examined the government's technical documents. The High Risk Zone Report, put out by the Risk Management Government Office, cited flood maps from a city miles away that were also 12 years old. In the whole history of the island, there has never been any damage caused by tsunamis. And it seems pretty convenient that the decree denies any services to those who decide to stay on the island. In a sense, it was a passive eviction. The government would make life on the island so difficult, people would be forced to leave. The government got itself in quite a pickle. They needed some sort of alternative to give people if they were going to leave the island. The government ended up committing itself to building some housing for those who would leave. So, people ended up living in shelters run by the government for over a year in order to qualify to receive a house. Unfortunately, it ended up being a ciudadela, or mini city, that consisted of a few dozen two-story houses located slightly above sea level, according to government-created maps. The government says the apartments are worth 10,000 US dollars and that residents only have to pay a thousand dollars over the course of three years. But this is still really hard for many residents, since there's little work to be found in the area. I visited the Ciudadela, and it seems problematic to me on many levels. First off, there is no privacy. Homes were located close together with no yard. The houses were made of the same cement material that fell down in the earthquake. But most importantly, it is located 15 minutes outside of the city. People who live there now have to pay two-way transportation costs to get to work or to fish in the same mangrove bushes they used to fish in for free. This is significant for people who make less than $20 a week.
1: One of the things was, I suppose, that they had to provide housing and they didn't have anywhere to put so many people. They managed to evacuate and house a fairly large number, but it was way less than half the population. And so I think they started to realize that there was a they were going to gain a lot of negative energy from the population and it was going to cost them a lot of money, so they kind of just softened up and and pretended that they weren 't really going ahead with it or something kind of stopped talking about it a bit uh, nevertheless, the declaration of a high risk zone is still over the island and Nobody is officially no. For example, nobody can take out a loan based on their on their property on the island at the moment because it's officially you know a high risk zone.
0: The government also had to contend with other promises they made. I guess
1: the Korea government got themselves into a bit of a problem because as soon as they declared it a high risk area, that meant that they the government it was against their policy to to construct schools. In an area where they're supposedly evacuating people from, so they had to supposedly follow a plan where they were going to resettle everyone on the mainland, and uh, so they put in, they built some temporary school schooling facilities just on the on the mainland in the in an area that's on the edge of the mangroves there, and all the students from the the local area have to attend that one place. It's very cramped and very inadequate. They've been there now for two and a half years.
0: In order to make life difficult on the island, the government closed down the five schools on the island that educated both elementary and high school students. I've seen some of the abandoned schools on the island. One is currently being used as a government building. Another has turned into a shelter for people who still don't have homes. And another school stands barren with beautiful, big, green soccer fields that are rapidly overgrowing. Only one private religious school has been able to reopen so that it is not restricted by government mandates. And the real kicker is, the new school that the government was forced to build as an alternative is just off the shore on the mainland in the same high-risk zone. And the even bigger kicker <laughs> is that the government had to build the first ever bridge from the island to the mainland for evacuation purposes. And so all of the school children could walk back and forth to get to school every day on the mainland. Now, I know I'm going on a bit of a rant here, but please indulge me. The thing that gets me the most upset about this whole situation is this darn bridge that they built. And I actually, I almost died on it, yeah. So, to me it's a symbol of the total dysfunction and corruption of the state. Okay, I'll give it to them that a bridge was necessary. I am happy the people have a way to cross back and forth, but it is the most terribly designed bridge I've ever seen. So, get this, it is a pedestrian only bridge. So, it can't help bring tourism to the island because no cars or trucks can cross it. Instead, though, it has been built for moto taxis, you know, three-wheeled motorcycles with seats on the back for passengers. Even though it's a pedestrian bridge, there is no designated walking lane for pedestrians. Instead, there are just two skinny lanes for motorcycle taxis to drive on and a few small viewing platforms every couple of feet. So, <laughs> my first time on the bridge, I was very confused. <laughs> I almost got run over by multiple taxis. I had to kind of, you know, wait for an opening in the flow of the motorcycle traffic, duck in, walk. A- few quick feet to the first viewing platform, like catch my breath and then wait for another opening and duck back in. The other tactic I learned after crossing the bridge multiple times was to just kind of walk single file the length of the bridge, practically hugging the railing, hoping that no one runs you over and hundreds of kids walk this bridge multiple times a day. It's crazy. I just wonder how an emergency evacuation vehicle or ambulance would get across. I'll post pictures on my website so you can see exactly what this bridge looks like. Okay, enough of my ranting. I decided to ask Marvin what he thought. How does this type of corruption still exist in a country rich, and resources and imagination.
1: People are, are too conditioned into believing that politics is all about squeezing all, all the blood you can get out of the people and it attracts, especially in this province, it attracts a lot of wrong types of people. People believe that a leader is is someone who, as they say, the one who gives the orders. It's not the person who tries to serve the people, it's just the one who has the power and, and, and oppresses and and if you don't if you try to do something just if, if you 're a politician or a, someone who's trying to get a project done in, in a serious way and get it done to a high quality standard as efficiently as possible, everyone will just look at you and say you 're stupid. how can you be so so naive and stupid? You, you could make yourself a millionaire." in your position why why are you not taking advantage of it and this 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 simple mentality that I would prefer to live in a happy and peaceful country than then have more money than I know what to do with to just spend it on parties and beer and, and oversized cars that I don't even need because I live in a beautiful place why would I want to drive out of it uh, so this, this, uh, this, this sort of mentality needs to be shifted.
0: So, with all of these depressing realities and interests at play, what can we really do? What would a viable solution look like for the people of the island of Muisne? As my head swirled with information overload, Marvin seemed to have things pretty well thought out.
1: So I think what we need to do is provide quality education and not just education in classrooms. I think it needs to be education that provides them opportunities in their community. And mostly I think uh, recreational type groups will will be the the key there because I would say 95% of the population of the young people would love to be doing something like surfing or or hiking or going down a river in a canoe or, or something. And they could do it if they just had a group of people who had a trip organized. But they don't do it and they sit in front of the television because they think it's... Because nobody does it, it's not doable. Ironically, the, the Korea government uses the slogan Love Life. And they're exactly the sort of people that don't love life. But it is exactly the, the solution that we need for, for Ecuador in general, but but especially in these abandoned areas of the country. We need to get young people to discover what loving life is really about, that really that has a real meaning and it's really possible to love life and love who you are and where you live. And once you really feel that inside you, you'll do anything to defend it and to improve it and protect it.
0: And Marvin is putting his words into action. He has started a nonprofit called Integridad Foundation. I'll provide a link to it on my website. Their goal is to connect youth with nature and outdoor learning, to get them thinking in new and creative ways, and inspire a love of learning. I want to read you a passage from their website about the nonprofit's philosophy. I think it's inspiring and a good representation of the dynamics of poverty in Ecuador. Here I go, okay, let's see. It says, working only at the social levels without looking at the psychological source of the problem only weakens individuals ability to learn vital skills like goal setting, respect for self, and respect for others. Skills that are the true cause of poverty, not the lack of resources or intelligence. Working at the superficial level also blocks opportunities for democracy to grow, which can only come from sound decision-making. This is at the root of Ecuador's poverty. It is a country overabundant with natural and human resources, but Ecuadorians live in a psychological labyrinth conditioned into their minds during childhood. So much so that most people can't even tell the difference between freedom and slavery happiness and woe, respect and manipulation, loved ones and enemies. So the fact still remains living on the island does put people at risk for other natural disasters in the future, but so does living on the mainland. Yet to intentionally displace thousands of individuals without any type of dialogue is simply irrational. We can hope that the current president, Lenin Moreno, feels called to action. But I'm sorry to say I have a creeping suspicion that the island of Muisne will continue to be forgotten. And remember that sign? We are not leaving Muisne. Here we stay. That sign, now more than ever, Sounds like a shout of rebellion. If you would like more information and photos from the stories on this podcast, please go to www.forcesthatmoveus.com If you would like to listen to a Spanish version of this podcast, please search Lo Que Nos Mueve on iTunes, or by going to our website. In the Spanish podcast, we cover the same themes, but sometimes the content is different. I'll also post a link in the show notes. Thank you to the National Geographic Society for supporting the production of this podcast. And thank you to Alex Alviar for the lovely intro music. You can find the full album by searching Equatorial on Spotify. Other music in this podcast includes... Peguche by Alex Alviar, Meadow by Destiny and Time, Cavern by Hovotov, Waltz of the Death by Sir Cubworth, Flying Free by Jungle Punks, Casual Desire by Ogonia Onyeke, So Long Analog by Norat Blankve, Go On Going by Stay Loose, and Long Road Ahead by Audio Binger.